the dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true. Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is John Barber, and that was Sarita singing Sonny and Frank Sinatra saying, Here's Johnny! The night he hosted the Tonight Show. Welcome to John Barber's World, live from Las Vegas, June the 11th. This is the month where the first time in history Vegas was known for something other than money. By the way, money is not the root of all evil. The root of all evil is the people who have too much of it. But this was a month Vegas was known for hockey. When the Stanley Cup playoffs started, our, I said our Golden Knights were a team of reject underdogs, something I could readily identify with, so I should have been rooting for them, but I wasn't. I wanted the Washington Capitals to win because of Alex Ovechkin. Since the NHL was just six teams, I've seen all the greats, but none as passionate and powerful as Ovechkin. And I love the fact 13 years ago when he was 19 and signed his first contract, his Olympic gold-winning Russian basketball player mother negotiated his son's her son's contract. Now, as some of you know, each player gets to take the Stanley Cup for a couple of days. I hope the NHL is smart enough to film Alex going home to Moscow and showing it to Vladimir Putin, who also plays hockey. That is something I would love to watch. Now, watching these amazing Stanley Cup playoffs, I realized that sadly. Sports and music seem to be the only professions left in America where people demand excellence, not even from actors. Politics is no longer a profession. It's an illness. Right now, as demonstrated by Robert De Niro's profane outburst at the Tony Awards last night, it is an illness that has killed intelligent discourse in America and reduced it to a four-letter word. Trump's announced pride at not being a reader and his gross comments about women are not qualities that turn folks into fans. But I am all for his attempts to get the CIA files on Kennedy's murder released to get to the bottom of America's problems. And I'm still waiting and hoping. And so maybe that's something that Robert De Niro could turn his attention to and his anger to. But Those who oppose Trump, like De Niro, who can only express it in a four-letter word, have sunk even deeper than the man they're attacking, totally destroying the possibility of any reasoned intelligent arguments in a vanishing democracy. What De Niro's useless gasoline on the fire slur proves is that actors need writers, and sadly, For me, it destroys any enjoyment I might have in the future in watching on TCM 
Some of his excellent films, Casino, Goodfellows, or Bronxdale. All I will see now is an inarticulate man with bad language, bad manners, and even worse judgment. So, Robert, for destroying that for me, (laughs) F you! Speaking of illness, three days in a row there were celebrity suicides, or what were called suicides. Designer Kate Spade in New York, cook Anthony Bourdain in Paris, the 33-year-old sister of the Queen of Belgium in Brazil, but no one mentioned 37-year-old Adrian Lamo, who hacked the New York Times, turning in Chelsea Manning. 900 Americans a week commit suicide. Because of this, my publisher's assistant, Carol Hennig in New York, asked me if I would post as a public service a very brief excerpt from my book called Your Mother's Not a Virgin, out next April from Trine Day. She asked if I would post the time I considered to be or not to be. Scores and scores of moving stories gushed out of you thanking me. And for that, I thank you. But most of all, I want to thank my guest tonight. A few weeks ago, he booked me on the widely popular and watched the Hagman Report, the show he so perfectly and professionally produces. The astonishing two hours resulted in over 11,000 views, which brought more and more attention to our film, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, especially in light of what Robert Kennedy Jr. said to Tucker Carlson. But even if my guest had not booked me, I would still be thanking him for his remarkable output as a commentator, writer, and host in his own right. His brilliantly written articles with their insights and revelations about everything from the deep state to the growing epidemic of child trafficking are a mind-blowing, mind-expanding must-read, and I read and archive all of them. An amazing man, an amazing talent with an even more amazing life story. It's an honor to welcome John Robertson. John, thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Wow. John Barber, thank you so much. And I'm so honored and blessed to join your listeners uh, here this evening. And I want to say a special thanks to your team and BBS Radio and for such a kind, spirited introduction. John, I would submit to you as we examine the recent uh, apportioned disclosure of some of the Kennedy files, again, under the presidential administration of Donald J. Trump. When we look at your film, uh, The American Media, and the second assassination of John Kennedy, I would submit to you, sir, that we can bookend what we colloquially call the deep state and the shadow government components therein. We can bookend the current era of convoluted, corrupt, and dare I say fake news with the following. November 22nd, 1963 in Dealey Plaza, and I apologize for being graphic, when we saw a much beloved and 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 I would remind your listeners, a divisive in his day, President uh, John F. Kennedy, his head was blown apart in front of the world. And Dan Rather went in front of the local audience and lied about it. But when we look at November 22nd, 1963, John, we can bookend that uh, with September 11th, 2001. And therein, in my opinion, what occurred in this country was a soft coup 
with the deep wow. state usurping the power of the people vis-a-vis Washington, D.C., what we now call the swamp. Well, you know, that was brilliantly observant of you to talk about uh, Kennedy and the divisive society, because very few people realize that John Kennedy just got in by a fraction of, of the vote. And, you know, it just goes to prove that even in his case, an extremely intelligent, articulate, hopeful man, a peace-loving man, that you can't please everyone. And for some reason or other, you, in, in bookending it that way, you describe it so perfectly. But since then, and now that we're into the swamp, it seems to be coming more and more of a swamp. I mean, I must say I was shocked at what I would call the bad manners and unprofessionalism of Robert De Niro last night at the Tony Awards. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked by it. As am I. What we see today is a, a notable parallel between John Kennedy and our current president, 45th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. John, they both came from East Coast establishment privilege. They both had a petrofamilia model over their family that was profound in their formative years. We see in President Donald Trump, and he's been much maligned, and I think erroneously so for this, his seed money, his upstart capital was bestowed upon him. It was gifted to him by his father, much the same way Joseph Kennedy intended to place Joseph Kennedy Jr., of course, in the White House, but World War II put a sad, abrupt end to Joe Kennedy Jr.'s life. John Kennedy was next in line, and we see the the parallels, in my opinion, John, of two men who had every opportunity to become establishment yes-men. They had every opportunity to serve and to pander to what Eisenhower appropriately called in his second to last day before leaving office, the congressional military industrial complex. And it's worth noting, and I'm sure many of your listeners are aware of this, congressional was excised in the 11th hour, 59th minute before Eisenhower's speech. But let's take a quick look back at, at, uh, at Kennedy and President Trump. I suggested bookends to frame this conversation tonight, and I would suggest, uh, again, two polarities to consider. When President Eisenhower, at that time the oldest president to serve, was leaving the White House, he warned the United States, he warned the American people, the taxpayer of the congressional military industrial complex. President Kennedy subsequently, approximately two years later, warned the American people of the deep state. He didn't call it that. It was his infamous secret society speech. But these two men tried their level best to frame for the American people what they knew was coming. Now, I'll just take one more quick second and flash forward to President Donald J. Trump. It's easy, John, to review JFK's just shy of thousand-day administration through rose-tinted glasses because our heart, our, our national heart continues to bleed for the death of that of that president, and then the subsequent death of his brother five years later, and we just we just uh, we just recognized that commemoration, of course, last week. But I digress. When we look at President Trump, we see a populist. We see a man who has determined that he would he will use his financial wherewithal and his gravitas to to attempt to frame a better deal, a better lifestyle for the American people. So, John, at some point. John Kennedy, President Kennedy, and President Donald Trump decided to depart 
from the road laid out for them, what I tend to think of as the other brick road. They chose to become men of the people. Now, I'd like to mention quickly an article that I wrote for Hagman Report, and John, you were kind enough to read it. Hagman oh, it, Report. It, it was brilliant. And I must, I must say, when you mentioned Donald J. Trump, you don't realize it, or maybe you do. You're bestowing a dignity on him that I ever, never, never hear anywhere. When people mention John F. Kennedy, it's always a middle initial, John F. Kennedy. You're the only one who calls him President Donald J. Trump. And, and that's quite amazing. And the article that you wrote, and I read it about three and a half or four weeks ago, is totally brilliant. So, so continue, please. Well, I, I, coming from a man with your accolades and with your many decades experience running around with people like, well, like Bernie Brillstein, for example, uh, that <laughs> means a lot to me. It, it genuinely does. And I thank you. The, the title of the article for your listeners is Can the Deep State JFK President <laughs> Trump? That can be found at hagmanreport.com. Hagman is H-A-G-M-A-N-N, hagmanreport.com. And John, the basic premise of the article is to examine these two men, to look at their policies, and to suggest, and I'd like to bounce this off you, sir, that, that we have a, a linchpin date right, right ahead of us, and right, just right over the horizon through our windshield here as a nation. And that is, of course, November 6, 2018, the midterm elections. We've heard all this talk about the blue wave, the blue wave. Personally, I feel that the DNC is in a flat tailspin. They are bereft of ideas. Their leadership looks like a clown car. And I don't think they've got what it takes. But they are a crafty, wily lot. And they've got the, the financial backing of Wall Street. And they have the, the panache of Hollywood behind them 110%. My, my thesis in this article, and this is why the article is mission critical for your listeners, sir, is... I hypothesize that if we get past November 6th of this year and the blue wave fails to crash over Capitol Hill, then what we may likely see is the multi-generational banking cartels uh, that usurped our country during uh, President Woodrow Wilson's administration through the Federal Reserve, but existed for many, 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 uh, actually centuries prior to that in Western Europe, the Warburg family the Rothschild family, et cetera. There's a big money plan, John, that these people are not going to watch swirl down the toilet because a real estate magnate and a mega charisma reality show star made it to the presidency of the United States. So, John, what, John, you know, yes, it's, enti it's entirely possible that, I, I mean, to me, the only difference between the Republicans and the Democrats is the spelling. And Gore Vidal <laughs> said that they're, 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 the, they're, they're different wings on the same bird, and the bird is the vulture. Now, he said that 45 years ago. I think the Democratic Party is absolutely and totally through. through. And I think that Donald Trump seems to represent a different segment of the banished Republican Party, because I think if Barry Goldwater were to come back today, I think they would call him a radical. But there is hope for Republicans. When you look at the state of California, people are shocked. There, there is now a possibility of a Republican governor. Which hasn't happened since the early 1990s under the administration of uh, Governor Pete Wilson. Let's take a quick look. Well, just to finish, I don't want to leave anything dangling with your listeners here this evening because I do so Go appreciate ahead. their time. 
Uh, my hypothesis with this article, and I, and I think your listeners will, will really get a good think piece out of this, is will the banksters, we call them the banksters, it's banker and gangster combined, will the banksters use the multitude of weapons they have at their disposal to hurt this president in the second half of his administration? Imagine this, John. Let's look at five primary swing states that, that miraculously Donald J. Trump carried in 2016. I'm speaking of Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and I, I always forget the fifth. These are states that some people call purple, but let's be honest, most of them have been blue states going back to Ronald Reagan's time. All the banksters have to do, John, is implement some financial skullduggery and, and, and require Americans, be it through their 401ks, their IRAs. Why does no one ever report on the MIRA anymore? The M-Y capital I-R-A, that is the federal option in air quotes for people to place their hard-earned life savings in 30-year notes. And all that does, John, is perpetuate the whole scheme that is the Federal Reserve, the greatest bank robbery in history. So my concluding remark regarding the article is simply this. Will we see this embattled president who for two years has deflected every stupid fake news clown show dart that uh, that Don Lemon and Brian Stelter and, and Jake Tapper, Rachel Maddow and their ilk have thrown at this man? We've had Stormy Daniels, Diet Coke, S-hole countries, and, and it goes on and on. I think, John, there's a possibility that one of these bankster multi-generational families are going to pick up the phone. And they're, they're, it's going to be the bat phone type thing. And they're going to say, listen here, CNN, you've had your day in the sun. We gave you two years to take this guy down. You failed to do so. So step aside and let the big boys come in and play ball. And when that happens, John, what we, we will see good, honest American people, patriots to the man and woman who, quote unquote, take a haircut financially. And because they don't track these things like you and I do and like many of your listeners do, all they will know is. I just got hosed. My family just got financially shellacked, and it happened on President Donald J. Trump's watch. Well, the question would be this. Why is it that President Trump has not repeated what Ron Paul said that he believed in, which was an audit of the Federal Reserve, and even Bernie Sanders? Now, Bernie Sanders was scared himself and scared Hillary Clinton, when he found he had 12 million voters and didn't know what to do with them, and he certainly didn't have the courage to live <laughs> up to his convictions in the Constitution. And I predicted that Bernie Sanders would become the Democrats. Ron Paul, these are the only major politicians who even talk about the Federal Reserve. Why would not President Trump do the same and point out the fact that this is a private banking cartel? that owns America. You know, a very few people are aware of the fact that John Kennedy in 19, early 1963 signed an executive order, 11110, which called for the treasury as mandated by the constitution to print notes redeemable in silver. This in essence, because at the time the interest rate was 20%. So if you were a farmer and needed a $50,000 loan, you could borrow it from your own government and pay back one and a half percent. That would have put the Federal Reserve out of business. And that's what Kennedy intended. The minute he was shocked, those presses stopped. I have samples of those bills. But 
that executive order has never been rescinded. So if Donald Trump wanted to, he could say, you know, I'm going to reinstitute that. Do you think he would? John, you've got me squirming in my chair. I have had this exact conversation with many very intelligent men and women, every, everyone from, from Hollywood luminaries to, to pastors to writers to uh, retired veterans in our spec ops community. That's really the question of the day when we look at his first administration. Now, uh, I appreciate your bringing this up. And again, the article available at HagmanReport.com goes into uh, Executive Order 1111. I think it's three ones, isn't it? Zero, a one, 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 zero. It's 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 four ones and a zero. And the yes, reason sir. I brought it up is because I remembered reading it, and I was astonished because I never read that in anybody's really good writing. I've never well, Chris Hedges. Now. Chris Hedges is a wonderful writer, but I've never seen him write about it. Well, John, I'm going to be, I don't want to get too off track, but I'll mention this quickly. I will be at the Red Pill Expo in Spokane, Washington at the end of this month, and I will be interviewing G. Edward Griffin, who wrote the, one of the oh, go-to poems of, of, of understanding, of, of getting what we now colloquially call red-pilled. The creature from Jekyll Island uh, should yeah. sit at the top of every mindful, preparedness-minded patriot's bookcase, along with Saul Alinsky Rules for Radical. Carol Quigley, uh, Zibanu Brzezinski, Henry Kissinger, uh, Cleon Skousen. John, these men on both sides of the globalist argument wrote exactly, precisely what they intend to do. So back to, back to President Trump and the conundrum he faces. The Federal Reserve is, is, a, is a termite infestation that took a legitimate uh, money system in our country as indicated by Article One, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution that empowers Congress to be the sole authority in the minting and coining of money. And it specifies that the, that the money shall be silver or gold. And of course, that goes all the way back, John, to the Old Testament. It's written in black and white. Uh, in, uh, it's either in Habakkuk or Haggai uh, in the Old Testament. So President Trump faces a real problem here. And I do have a theory about it. And I intend to write an article, but this one's going to be a monster. And the research I've already started uh, will be uh, many dozens of hours by the time the article's ready. And, and it goes something like this. What we see happening in the world today is a dying scheme. And I would encourage your listeners to do some homework on the petrodollar. Because what happened essentially is on August 15th, 1971, then President Richard Nixon, and I would be remiss if I didn't point out that the deep state can be seen, the evidence of their foul play can be seen from the moment Kennedy passed away all the way through the 86ing of Richard Nixon and the, the insertion of a man who was never voted for anything except freshman congressman from Michigan, uh, President Gerald Ford. So, so what happened is on August 15th, 1971, Nixon announced that we would no longer operate off the bimetallic standard. He indicated that henceforth the Federal Reserve note would be backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. What he didn't mention is that it would no longer be backed on a domestic level by silver and on an international level by the gold reserves that are ostensibly kept in Fort Knox. So that was August 15th, 1971. Things haven't changed so much culturally. The biggest gripe after that Sunday evening announcement that President Nixon interrupted Bonanza. But I digress again. So 
Henry Kissinger goes over to Saudi Arabia, 1973, 1974. He started as Richard Nixon's national security advisor, the same position held by other globalists like Zbigniew Brzezinski during the presidency of Jimmy Carter or Condoleezza Rice during the presidency of George W. Bush. Yes. He becomes the secretary of state. Long story short, he goes over to the Royal House of Saud and he says, you've got a big problem. World War One was 50 years ago, 60 years ago. You're the last absolute uh, familial monarchy on the planet. Oh, and by the way, you're surrounded by enemies. So you've got a problem and <clears throat> so do we. Your problem is you need a big stick. Our problem is we need to export our inflation, not just to the 50 states, but to the entire world. And of course, that preeminence began at Bretton Woods post-World War II. So, the in, so at the end of the day, they cooked up a scheme, and the scheme was simple. Saudi Arabia would sell every drop of oil, and then they extrapolated this over an 18-month period to include all of the OPEC nations. And they would, they would, the only requirement is that oil must be purchased with U.S. dollars. Now, why is this important? Because it, think of it like a uh, like you're a carpenter and you have a thousand nails, those thousand nails are valuable to you. But if you're a carpenter and you have a hundred million nails, basically you've got a real estate problem is what you've got. That's a silly, <laughs> it's a silly analogy, but that's where we're at with the US dollar today. John, there was a report that came out in Zero Hedge, the Silver Doctors covered it and other really good platforms of, that are uh, in the contrarian economics, the Austrian school of economic thought. And this came out in 2011 and it indicated that if you shook every American upside down, if you grabbed them by the ankle and knocked their gold teeth out and you, and you sabotage grandma's purse, what you would have in an enormous pile was at that time in 2011, just under $1 trillion of actual US currency in paper dollars, coins, et cetera. But around the world, it is estimated that we have anywhere from about eight to 10 times that amount of money that's floating around the world, John. And what's keeping that money afloat is that until bilateral exchange between two nations, a seller and a purchaser was facilitated in real time by the internet. Up to that point, we got away with it. But now people are wise to the gimmick. So if I was, the, if I was a corporate uh, a titan in Chile and I wanna buy oil from Saudi Arabia, I have to convert my Chilean peseta to the US dollar, and then the Saudis have to convert the US dollar back to the Saudi real. So everybody- John, I, John, I, want get, I want to get back for a moment to that excellent article that you wrote that's on the Hagman Report about would they JFK Trump. I hate to say this, uh, I was in California when Squeaky Frome shot Gerald Ford, and the reason he didn't die is the bullet hit him in the head. I hate to say that, but in any event, in reading, you, <laughs> sorry, I was a little, I was a little slow on the uptake with that. One. <laughs> That's all right. But in it, in, there are two things that Donald Trump could do that I think could literally solve the problem. Thomas Jefferson said, "You cannot have a democracy if you do not have informed voters." We have totally, according to Mark Twain, totally misinformed voters now. The worst president to me was Bill Clinton, because you're talking about all the money being overseas. He's the guy that sent, signed NAFTA that probably sent all those jobs and all that money overseas. But worse than that is he signed the Communications Act. You well remember that when John Kennedy was president, 
a company could only own five television or five radio stations or five newspapers. What what Clinton did in signing the Communications Act, he has allowed six corporations to own 95% of all our media. All President Donald J. Trump has to do is reverse and rescind the Communications Act and NAFTA. Now, I've heard him talking about or threatening to reverse NAFTA, but it hasn't quite happened. What Now, if he doesn't do these things and he is still not getting along with the Warburgs and, uh, and the Rothschilds and the rest of them, I get back to your article. They wouldn't off him by shooting him. God, isn't that a terrible thing to talk about murdering a president, for God's sake? What does the country come to? But we're well aware of what these serial killers have done to Martin Luther King, to Malcolm X, to Robert Jr. They are serial killers. They would not hesitate at doing the same to Trump, but they couldn't shoot him. That would be too obvious. Do you think they would get rid of him? Well, that's an excellent question, John, and thank you. Shooting President Donald J. Trump would foment the Civil War. Now, I don't think it would foment a line of demarcation with the North in blue and the South in butternut and gray. What I think it would look like is is, is dozens and dozens of, of pockets of, of conflagration surrounding all the different metropolitan regions of the country. And, of course, we could, we could have an entire discussion about that alone. I think that what President Trump is facing here, it's a two, I want to take this as a two-parter. First, to clean up what I was on a rant about a moment ago. The bottom line is that President Trump has to model a new plan that, that realizes and recognizes that the petrodollar scheme, if, if your listeners take nothing else away from my comments tonight, please educate yourselves on how the petrodollar has enabled us to export inflation to the world. John, if all of those U.S. dollars come back to our shores we will have a hundred times the amount of paper money chasing the same limited number of services and products. That's gonna that's gonna in, um, it's gonna ignite hyperinflation overnight. So that's just to clean that up, to clean that mess up. But to answer your question, what I think the the banksters realize, John, is they need to defame and defang and neutralize this president, but they can't do so with something as jaw-dropping and ostentatious and murderous as what they pulled off in Dealey Plaza November 22nd of 63. So I suspect that what we what we may see is a, a Middle East conflict that keeps the petrodollar afloat for two more years until President uh, Donald J. Trump can can go through the 2020 election. And I know this, I'm not, I don't mean to paint our president in a, in a bad light. I love the man, but he's well aware. Folks, President Trump has thrown up brick, stone, and glass in every city across the globe. He knows how to get things done. He knows where to grease the wheels, and he knows when to bring an envelope of cash or when to bring a bat. He knows how to get things done. Unions, organized crime, and all the panderers that surround them. So this man knows how to play hardball, and he knows, John, that there is a a fire burning in the basement underneath our country, and that fire is the biggest bank robbery of all time. And I fear, and this goes back to the article, I fear that what the what the banking cartels will do is they will turn 30 or 40% of the 62 million who voted for him in, in 2016 against him simply by punching them in the pocketbook. It could be a bail-in scenario, a Cypriot Greek-style bail-in, or it could be 
a crashing of the currency like we saw the CIA implement uh, against the Gorbachev regime uh, just prior to Boris Yeltsin at the yes. end of the Soviet era. I'm going to ask you a, a very, very weird question. And it just occurs to me because I love reading your writing. I don't, I mean, I don't read stuff that articulate and that profound. Any other place, a couple of other places, maybe Joe Satilli, who is going to be on later in the show, has a great newsletter that I read every, every single day. But the question I would ask you is this. Do you think that Donald, Trey, Donald J. Trump has in his cabinet an advisor as articulate and as knowledgeable as you. Now, I can imagine that John Kennedy would have 10 of you in his cabinet. I don't see one like you in his cabinet. Oh, I'm, I'm squirming in my chair right now. First of all, I'm, I'm, my cheeks are a rosy apple red. John, right now I look like the Campbell soup kid. <laughs> okay. But, uh, <laughs> But, but really, you're, you're too kind. And I, I'm so grateful that we've made the acquaintanceship and, and the developing friendship that we have because we're truly we truly are patriots cut from the same cloth and from the same background, more or less, coming up through Hollywood. But to answer your question with a humble spirit, uh, we will be attending an enormous event uh, in early September in uh, D.C. And I, I hate to be coy. I don't appreciate that when I'm vetting guests and when I'm getting to know people to bring on to the Hagman Report. Uh, but I will say this, that I have submitted certain information uh, to the Secret Service and am going through a vetting process at this time. Wow. Wow. How interesting. Well, John, I must tell you, you're just you're absolutely fascinating to listen to. And, you know, I I always when I said to you before we got on the air, you know, I always the people that I admire, the talents I admire, one of the first things I want to ask is where they came from, their early influences, and how they became the people they are. And I'm so wrapped up in the information you're imparting, I never got to the personal side. So could I ask you a favor? Would you come back in four or five weeks, and let's just talk about you and the adventure of your life? I mean... Sure. Sure, that would be fine. I, I, John, I'd come back in four or five minutes. I really am, and like I said, I'm blessed, I'm charmed, I'm humbled uh, to have made your acquaintance. We're going to have some wonderful shows coming up on the Hagman Report, and I would encourage your listeners to, to go on YouTube and, and access your archived piece. But, John, I need to make a quick correction. Sure. Your, your uh, piece with us on the Hagman Report has been heard or accessed by over a quarter million people around the globe. YouTube Are you kidding? Is no, I'm not kidding. YouTube is like our little distant third step cousin. Oh my that, gosh. That they modulate our channel. They censor us. They, 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 they mess with our numbers. On Blog Talk Radio alone, your show has garnered well, well north of six figures. And that doesn't take into consideration the Global Star Radio Network, which is our satellite uplink that typically oh hits my. 60 to 80 countries per night, depending on atmosphere, well, so you, you, sir, made a, you, sir, made a heck of an impression. <laughs> well, I must, I must tell you, John, two things absolutely and totally st astonished me about being on your show, because I know that uh, Doug and his son are quite conservative. You are probably much more radical and progressive in some ways, and conservative in others, <laughs> and and both of them are uh, obviously quite religious. And I didn't want to be dishonest when I told the story about how I lost 
my 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 belief in prayer, and I I gave it all up, you know. Uh, and 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 you were all so gracious to me. But what happened? I must have gotten, I must have gotten thirty emails and Facebook messages, all of them from women. And a half a dozen said that they were going to read. They were going to read my book called "Your Mother's Not a Virgin" just because of the title. And then they they awesome. all ended it complimenting me on being on the show, complimenting me for having made the documentary. And every one of them at the end said, "And we're praying for you. God bless you." Amen. I mean, I was I was so moved by that. Anyway, I can't thank you enough. We will do this often because it's just, I mean, yes, I just, please. Yes, oh please. my God. John, it, I, I will say this as my parting remark here this evening for you, sir. I will okay. agree to come back and discuss a little bit of my bio with the caveat that we will play a good game of ping pong like we did tonight and that we will unpack and bounce ideas off one another about uh, the American media and the second assassination of our president, John F. Kennedy, because that documentary is a must-see. I know it's available on Vimeo. John, please make sure your listeners get to that documentary. I thoroughly enjoyed it. The Hagmans did as well. Well, thank you. And John, once again, mention where you're going to be in September and uh, whom you're going to be interviewing and where they can get your wonderful article, especially the one about Will they JFK Donald Trump? Well, thank you so much. Quickly, uh, all of my writing can be found at HagmanReport.com. That's H-A-G-M-A-N-N Report.com. Simply do a search for my name. Be advised, I do the show page every night as well. So you want to look for those original articles. Two others, Can the New Media Survive the Network Media Mindset? is a critical one to read. And my most recent piece, Tech Tyrants Collude with Department of Homeland Security. Media influencers are the target for anyone who accesses new media and or blogs, retweets, or Facebooks about the content you hear on shows like John Barber's. You must read that article. Tech tyrants collude with DHS. Media influencers are the target. It is a must read. John Barber, God bless you. Thank thank you so much. You've been so kind tonight. I really am blushing. (laughs) Well, thanks, John. Very, very much. And the best of luck to you. I look forward to talking to you again, believe me. And we're going to be right back with Joe Satilli, who's almost as articulate as John and someone without whom I could not do this show. We'll be right back with John Barber's World. Hello, this is John Barber telling you about the long-running hit TV series Criminal Minds now in its 13th year. Criminal Minds explores the work of talented FBI profilers who seek to unravel crime cases through behavioral profiling. Follow the efforts and lives of these elite profilers as they analyze the nation's most dangerous criminal minds in an effort to anticipate their next moves before they strike again. Criminal Minds airs Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 Central. A must-see. Don't miss it. Bye now. You're listening to BBS Radio. If it's not mainstream, it's on bbsradio.com. Great music from all the greatest performers from sunup to sundown. How do you keep the music playing? 
Then, great talk all night. The mysteries of UFOs, conspiracy theories, and the true story of Las Vegas that has never been told. There are three ways to listen to KIYQ. Go to the TuneIn app, just search for KIYQ, or go to www.kiyq.org. Listen from any telephone, call 605-477-2857. That's 605-477-2857. Long distance charges may apply. KIYQ 107.1 This is John Barber. You may remember me as the co-host, producer, and creator of Real People, America's first reality show, or most recently as the writer-director of what's been called the definitive documentary on JFK's murder, The Last Word on the Assassination. Now I'm doing a show every other Monday from 5 to 6 Pacific Time on BBS. You'll hear provocative views, unreported news, and film reviews from me with outstanding guests and you. Join me on John Barber's World. Hi, I'm Richard Valzer. This is the great BBS radio. Those of you who have an ongoing interest in the JFK assassination might want to know about this. TV producer John Barber. He put together a dream team of JFK researchers, including Coast regular Jim Mars and uh, world-class JFK writers Dick Russell and Joan Mellon. They all got together at UNLV in front of a live audience. They had a screening of Barber's terrific, and I'd say historic, film based on interviews with uh, prosecutor Jim Garrison of New Orleans. And then after the film was shown, the experts all talked about the latest JFK theories and evidence. It's now out on a DVD. Terrific stuff. I'm George Knack, Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back to John Barber's World, and I get a chance once again to talk to my favorite cohort and friend, Joe Satilli, who did an absolutely wonderful job a couple of weeks ago filling in for me because I had another assignment. Joe, how have you been? It's been two weeks since I talked to you. Uh, you know, I'm muddling through at this point. I think uh, I, I kind of hit a wall about four or five, six weeks ago. Just the, the barrage, the daily barrage, starting to wear me down a little bit. And I'm trying to, you know, screw up my courage again. Because, hey, I'm screwed up anyways. Uh, to screw up my courage again and uh, redouble my efforts. I have a couple pieces that are due, so I'm working on those. But mostly, I, you know, I'm fascinated to see what happens in the next 24 hours in Singapore. Obviously, that is out there. Uh, I'm sure whatever happens, victory will be declared uh, I think one of the one of the interesting things about this to me is that the Iran nuclear deal was was unplugged by Donald J. Trump, and uh, there's an amazing piece that I led the uh, the rundown off with today in the New Yorker. It's probably about ten thousand words, so you got to get comfortable. But it's all about the background of Donald J. Trump's involvement with Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Emirates and Israel, and how deeply he is ensconced in their policy objectives. And as a matter of fact, 
involving Eric Prince and others, how there there was actually a plan, which we don't know if it's continuing to be fomented or not, to disrupt the Iranian economy with cyber attacks to try and create the conditions for the overthrow of the regime. Now, John, Donald J. Trump brought in John Bolton, and John Bolton and both Rudolph Giuliani have been closely aligned with the Mujahideen al-Khalq, and the MEK has long been deemed a terrorist organization. It is basically the leftovers of the people who are enthusiasts of the Shah of Iran, and they would like to overthrow the Islamic Republic of Iran and reinstitute uh, what they think of as a constitutional monarchy, right? So some combination of democracy and monarchy and bring back their, they, I'm sure they want their real estate holdings back more than anything. But um, so, so there is this really interesting background thing happening in Iran because, of course, Donald J. Trump is intimately associated with Saudi Arabia. And I, one of the things that I think is really fascinating about Donald Trump, I listened to, the, to your first guest, and I think one of the things that has caused me to, to get back on my heels a little bit is the extent to which Donald Trump has been given an infallibility by his supporters. And I, what I mean by that is I look at Donald J. Trump's uh, administration so far and the primary beneficiaries financially, I mean, just to the tunes of hundreds of billions of dollars, have been Wall Street, the oil industry, the defense industry in Saudi Arabia. And when I think about the deep state and the formation of the deep state under Alan Dulles, the deep state basically being essentially the CIA as kind of a uh, paramilitary arm uh, and propaganda arm of, of Wall Street, the oil industry, and the military industrial complex, the defense industry. And as your guest so adequately uh, described earlier, a part of that was bringing the Saudi Arabians into the deep state through the, uh, the reciprocal relationship of defense and, and petrodollars. So Donald J. Trump has actually been the champion of these forces and the extent to which the people who support him actually believe the complete opposite is something that actually caused me to have a little bit of despair because I've, I kind of felt at, at one point about six weeks ago that no matter how much the information is presented or the fact that uh, McClatchy did a, uh, an analysis of spending and they found that $15 million of taxpayer money and campaign money has been cycled through Trump properties to the benefit of the Trump family. So they're basically just using Trump hotels as money laundering devices for taxpayer money, for example, and for, and for campaign dollars, that these stories are never going to break through. And much of the fog machine that you've been trying to destroy in the course of your voluminous and, uh, well, and highly accomplished career is actually just getting foggier and more profound and I look at the, the Alex Joneses of the world and the conspiracy mongers that are out there and they're getting all kinds of traction and they're selling all kinds of boner pills and special you know, devices to clean your water so that you can drink during the apocalypse. And the amount of money they're making. Um, no, what they're selling mostly is food that lasts for 50 years. Yeah, well, I, Jim Baker, and he's got these buckets yes. of food, right? But you, know, you know, you know the, the truth is, it seems as though even, you know, it's obvious that the Clintons are more crooked and corrupt than Donald J. Trump is. And let's say maybe there are aspects of Trump and he's taken $15 million and he's hidden the money. 
Right now, if you published the facts of that story, America would not care. They don't care. They are that's, just, that's you know what they care about? They care about, well, he got his. How can I get mine? I think I'll go and spend 10 bucks on the lottery ticket. No. I mean, I, we've actually, uh, I think that that is a, a valuable insight. And I think we've gotten to the point at which the uh, ends justify the means. Can From- you imagine? Can you possibly imagine? 40 or 50 years ago, imagine how bad it was when 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 Marlon Brando won an Academy Award. He had an Indian girl, Sasheen Littlefeather, come to the Oscars and accept that Oscar, yeah. and people were outraged. Yeah. Now, she didn't or, or swear. The stre- or the streaker for David Niven, but... <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, they, I mean, that lady didn't say the F word even in Sue. You understand? <laughs> Could you imagine what would have happened? And then uh, when, uh, oh, chubby guy, uh, uh, Moore, the documentary maker, he one of his, yeah, uh, Columbine, about, I think. war in Iraq, and he got into Yeah, yeah, he, and, and they started to boo him. Yeah. They started to boo him. And they booed him because he was admonishing Bush as a war criminal, which indeed he was. And everybody in the audience knew he was, but he was the president, so they still booed him. Could you imagine what would have happened to him if he had stood on that stage and said, F George Bush, they would have hung him. Well, you know, and Kanye West caused a great stir during a uh, post-Katrina um, celebrity music industry event to raise money for Katrina victims when he said George Bush doesn't like black people. And that was a gigantic uh, thing. Yeah. You know, here's the thing about about that. And I, you know, it's interesting. I actually think impeachment is just a stupid thing to bring up because it you're taking the bait. And I think that De Niro took the bait. And, and this is one of the things that I think Trump does better than anybody I've ever seen, which is control the terms of the news cycle. He actually dominates the news cycle. He controls the news cycle. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of what we see in terms of coverage of Russia is actually not something that's generated to the benefit of his opponents. It's generated to the benefit of him. You know what I'm waiting for him to do? I'm waiting for somebody to ask him about De Niro. Now, he's probably not witty enough to do this. But what he should do is he should look into the camera and he should say, F Robert De Niro. And the F is for forget Robert De Niro. That would go viral. Well, I mean, I look, I'm sure something will come up. I'm going to have to do is watch the Twitter feed. John, I get up at four in the morning. And the first thing <laughs> I do is look at that Twitter feed to figure out, am I going to be able to get through to the publishing of the, of the rundown without having to change it at the last minute? Because it's, it's there. I have to keep watching. Look, we're, I think that, that obviously... We're in an odd situation heading into into an election in November in which the terms of the debate are those that I mean, this is why they call it the bully pulpit. When you have the presidency, you have the ability to control the terms of the debate. And by using Twitter and by doing all of these things and being 
as profane as Donald Trump has been in his political career over the last, what, 16 to, to 27 months or whatever it's been, 28 months, he has, he, has, he has a level of infallibility that is afforded to him that is not afforded to his opponents. So when his opponents engage in the kind of profane discourse that he has used to great effect, it actually ends up working in Donald Trump's favor. And so I, the, the one of the f- interesting conundrums for people who are concerned about what's happening, if that's what they're concerned with, maybe they're concerned on the other end, is how do you come up with a strategy to deal with somebody who has infallibility? And I think that we don't have a strategy for that. I don't think, I don't think the American people are really, um, are really uh, acculturated to dealing with that level of infallibility. But, you know, that is a totally wonderful and honest observation. That is true. He is more infallible than the Pope. Yeah. No, I mean, look, John, here's the fact. This is the kind of stuff I get hung up on. Rudolf Giuliani said that the president could kill James Comey and not be prosecuted under law. <laughs> now, whatever well, you Trump, want to say Trump, about well, anything. Trump. During the, you remember during the campaign? No, Trump. well, we've already had the Fifth Avenue thing. This is the yes. guy who is who's said to be the president's official lawyer and public-facing legal representative, saying yes, the president can kill the director of the FBI and not be prosecuted under law. And I, and I'll tell you one of the things that's for me. I, you know me; I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat at all. I've never been. I've never well, been- listen, Joe, some people might say the, the murder of any lawyer is justifiable. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I just wonder where where are people? Where where what have what have people I mean, if we're actually to the point at which we're saying, OK, power is the only thing that matters. If really we're at if we're just saying power is it and the ends justify the means. If the ends justify the means in all aspects of American life, I would say that America has finally reached moral bankruptcy. And well, I, you know, it, there's no question. Mao Zedong was right that barrel power comes out of the end of a barrel. Uh, he's absolutely right. Power is everything. Absolutely everything. And you know, you brought up the business of the monarchy. I mean. Even in today's world in Saudi Arabia, Iran, or even England, for crying out loud, don't they re- look at, at monarchies as outmoded? As well, in a, Iran, they do. They monarchy. got rid of their monarchy. They got rid of their monarchy right. because their monarchy was an adjunct of the U.S. deep state. Yes. And, and yeah. so this is one of the this is I want to bring it back again. One of the primary targets of Donald J. Trump's administration is Iran. Why? Because they oppose the deep straight. And I will propose to you here, and I've said it many times, Donald J. Trump is the best thing that ever happened to the deep state. He is the agent of the deep state. He is the agent of Saudi Arabia, of the military-industrial complex, of Wall Street. The crash that's going to come is going to come because Wall Street is getting out over its skis again. It is engaged in billions of dollars of stock buybacks right now artificially inflating the stock market. Why? Because Donald J. Trump gave them a massive tax cut that they are using that money, that windfall, to buy their own stock prices to drive it up. That is going to lead to a crash. 
I, I, I'm afraid that I'm going to have to agree, agree with you. And it's hard to say that because I've been through a couple already. Anyway, Joe, it's just so wonderful to have you back. Where can they get your news vandal? Just go to newsvandal.com, get on the list and get the email. And John, as ever, thank you. Uh, it's always great to be with you and a wonderful opening monologue, by the way. Oh, thank you so very much. And thank you all for tuning in. I really appreciate that. I appreciate all the wonderful notes that you've uh, sent me. And as Ed Murray used to say, good night and good luck. Sunny, 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 I love you.